the next two years were pretty much me trying to get off of heroin, keep my family happy, um, and find a way to stay sober. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Joining me today is Ben Ertl, a good friend and a born salesman. <laughs> I think you just have the flair and the innate personality to be successful. We met a couple years ago, and uh, I went on a couple trips with you, and mm-hmm. you're really good at what you do, which is uh, fitting because you have spent the last few years in business development for uh, you know mental health and substance use, which we'll get into. But you grew up in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. I want to know what life was like for you. Yeah. And, you know, when did you start dabbling and you know, mm-hmm. go on the, the up and down road of, you know, addiction and recovery? Sure. So I grew up in Mason, actually. Uh, so, you know, five minutes from Kings Island, my whole upbringing. So that's where we spent most of our summers, me and my sisters. Um, life was good growing up. My mom was, uh, she, she kind of went between a stay-at-home mom, a children's pastor at church, or a third grade teacher, which she just retired as a third grade teacher. Um, and my dad uh, spent his career as an Ohio State Highway Patrolman. So um, he was like on patrol for the most of his career. And then when I was five or six, we got a canine dog, actually. So he went away for a couple months up to Columbus and learned how to um, work with this this dog. His name was Sancho. And um, he brought him home. And uh, the state built like this nice, beautiful pen in our backyard for him and everything. And that was our first family pet, to be honest, was it was, like, was a drug dog. Hmm. So, um, so that was cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, life was good growing up, you know, no complaints. Um, played, played a lot of baseball. Um, I got tall, young, so I played first base and was really good at it. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I was a band kid, so I played trumpet. I just had this knack for playing trumpet. I don't know why. Um, I never practiced. I never tried. I just kind of picked a it savant. up. Yeah, I just kind of picked it up and did it. Um, and that, that actually plays along with a lot of my life. Like, I just kind of went and did stuff and kind of fit in. But I never did anything long. Like, I, you know, I would, I would do it and, like, learn a lot about what I'm doing and then just kind of move on to the next thing, you know. Um, was it a losing interest type of? I don't know if it was like losing interest as much as just move on. Yeah, I don't know. Like I just, I mean, I can't tell you how many jobs I've had in my life. Just not like important jobs, but just you know, I'd go go work at like Meyer or something like that, and you know, I'd stay for like three months and be like, oh, I'm gonna go work here now. You know, mm-hmm. um, I caddied in junior high at a country club in Mason. Um, and that was awesome. I love golf. Um, and I dabbled a little bit there. You asked the dabbling question. So I dabbled a little bit there, you know, it wasn't Caddyshack by any means, but I think a lot of the guys there wish it was. Was that the first time that you saw marijuana? Uh, no, and not I'm really. Sorry, what age was that? Oh, well? this is like seventh, eighth grade. Okay. I mean, I'm talking like sneaking into the, uh, the, like the, they had a big, big gated area where they kept all the liquor and like sneaking in and grabbing like, you know, a handle of vodka and Mm. passing it around between like 30 kids, you know? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, that was like dabbling, though, to its mm-hmm. purest form. I um, was really involved in church growing up. Um, like I said, my mom was a children's pastor. We were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Um, and so to talk about like my re- my life, and uh, so like I, I always kind of share this when I share my story is that I showed up to church a different bin. I showed up to my grandparents and my family functions a different bin. I showed up to school Monday morning a different guy, you know. Um, I had, I was always like playing, playing different parts in different plays. Um, whoever I thought needed to be there to fit in, that's who would show up. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and what that did was that led me to, I think that plays into a lot of my not being committed to something for a long time. It also plays into, I never really had, like, I could tell you like best friends that I had in certain grades and at certain ages, but I never have had like that like best friend, you know what I mean? Um, I think it was cause I was always so flaky and always so flighty and like nobody could ever get to know me cause I was always just somebody else would show up, you know, it's kind of sad. Like to think the jackal. About. Like the, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of sad to think about. But that was my life. I just, I don't know. Now was that, you, do you think that was like a self-confidence type of not believing in yourself type of yeah, I thing? Think it a was defense a, mechanism? Or? A defense mechanism for sure. Um, you know, I in the big books in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks a lot about how we were different actors in different plays. Um, it was definitely um, a self a selfishness and self centered thing and an ego thing, where I, you know, wanted everybody to like me regardless of who you were, and my ego said um, that I could control that and that I needed to find a way to control that. And in reality, what it probably did was push people farther away from me um, and allow nobody to really get to know me and allow myself, you know. I I never knew who I was, I guess you would say. Um, But yeah, no, I didn't, as far as like the dabbling question goes, I think I drank twice in high school. I think I smoked once or twice. That just wasn't a thing I thought about. None of my buddies were like really into it. Um freshman year of high school, I didn't do great. Uh, I was kind of, I was, <laughs> I, I wore the same hoodie almost every day. And I listened to system of a down, like almost every day at school, like under my hoodie headphones. I just was like this real, like kind of like the guy, you know? Um, and then I met a girl sophomore year of high school and a lot of things changed. You know, I wanted to impress her. I found out that girls don't like guys that aren't going anywhere. Um, so I started trying and, um, did okay, you know. Um, we were together throughout high school. Um, and then, you know, I kind of went to college. I went to UC. Um, and at this time, uh, it was 2004, there was a presidential election going on. And so I, um, I don't know, I've always been, a, like, history and politics just always enticed me. Like, I wrote a paper in seventh grade about the Supreme Court when other kids were writing about, like, you know, just normal seventh grade stuff. Um, I don't know why. Uh, It's just always something I was really interested in. And so um, I started volunteering on a campaign that summer of 2004. And by election day, I was at an election night party. You know, I was, I had met the president three times that year. I was, yeah, I got to ride in like uh, a motorcade from Lunkin Airport to an event, like really crazy stuff. Bulletproof car and the whole nine. Yeah, the whole nine, yeah. So, you know, I, I thought, and then that was like really shining to me, like, wow, this is really cool, you know. Um, 
And so I did okay at UC. I didn't do horribly yet. I, I did eventually, but um, <clears throat> I I just got really involved in that in that stuff, like politics, volunteering, whatever it may be. And that led me to get an internship and then eventually a job in D.C. So um, I worked for a member of Congress in Washington, D.C., which I thought I achieved. That was my career goal, pretty much. So I was 20. Uh, I turned 21 out there. Um, and that's really where I learned how to drink, like socially. So is there a lot of drinking in the political? Heck yeah. Is so <laughs> just to give a life of a congressional staffer, I mean, you show up at 7, 7.30 every morning. Uh, you work all day until 5. Um, and then, <clears throat> so like I was a staff assistant, pretty much the lowest tier of a, of a member of, of a staff member of Congress. And so, uh, I would go through all the mail and, um, I mean, any, on any given day, you get three or four different invites to a reception on the Hill. So whether they're at the Capitol building or at one of the surrounding office buildings, um, it's a lobbying organization. One of my favorites was the, um, uh, the National Association of uh, Turkey Hunters through a <laughs> uh, through a party at um, on Capitol Hill, and they had like four massive turkeys, and then just wild turkey surrounding the turkey. So you would grab a, a plate of turkey and then grab a glass of wild turkey. Um, huh. It was a great party. Um, that's pretty much what I'm talking about. So like all these lobbying organizations would just five o'clock hits. I would go to our schedule and be like what's on the ad- agenda tonight? And like one guy would go to one, I'd go to one and then and somebody else would go to the other. And then we'd text each other and say, Hey, this is what they got here, you know, and compare and contrast, which the best party was, and then go to that party. Did so. you just get shit faced and not really worry about mingling? And no, we mingled. I mean, that was all part of the fun, but right. yeah, I learned how to, I learned how to drink like a gentleman. So I thought, and drink top shelf liquor and fit in and be cool. And you know, that's, that was all, I mean, you're drinking with like, you know, lobbyists and chief of staffs. And, Upper crust. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so that's really where I learned how to drink. On my 21st birthday, I got alcohol poisoning. It just, it made sense to me. Um, you know, I became, I was, you know, I was really, what I, I, I hope I was, but I thought I was really good at being in that arena, being in that scene and uh, fitting in. And, um, you know, I was 21 years old and uh, most of these guys had, master's degrees, law degrees, um, and they seemed to want to associate with me. So I was just going to ask if they treated you no, like one a guy, colleague or a... One guy at a bar asked me if I was an intern, and I, I got upset about it, thinking I was so much better than that. You know, No, they just treated me, excuse me, they treated me normal. So. And so how long was that? So I was out there for almost a year. I had the opportunity to stay and really like just continue. They didn't care about school. They didn't care about anything. Um, but that girl from high school that I told you about, she kind of was back in my life a little bit. Um, I had, I had signed a lease here in Cincinnati with my four best friends at college, the guys I lived in the dorms with. And like, you know, we had a party house pretty much. And I thought, man, I I just kind of, honestly, I would think about being, you know, thirties, forties, so on, and not having this time in my life and thought, I'm going to regret this. So yeah. So I, so I told my chief of staff, I wanted to come back and, uh, he tried to talk me into it a little bit, but you know, I kind of made up my mind and then I came back home and, um, didn't have anything to do. I wasn't going back to school. I said I would eventually, but I didn't, you know, I pretty much just partied. 
a guy I grew up with moved in down the street, and he was the one that really set me onto the drug scene. So, um, you know, I didn't have anything to do all day. He had really good weed. Um, Eventually, uh, one guy stopped by, he had cocaine. Another guy stopped by, he had some pills, um, mushrooms, acid, whatever, whatever it may be. And I, for some reason, I just said, sure, every single time. Like, it never even crossed my mind to be like, eh, no, you know, I just, like, I don't know. What the heck? Yeah, what the heck? Why not? Um, And so 2007 was a really hard year for me. Um, You know, there's a lot to say about growing up in the suburbs and having a great life, but what I didn't ever experience with it was any, like, real true hurt or pain um, growing up. You know, I don't think I was sheltered necessarily, but I certainly didn't have to deal with like real life issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I never really dealt with death. I never really dealt with, um, you know, rejection or anything like that. I don't mind saying it now, and this kind of fits into the whole stigma stigmatized thing. But you know, I was really. It took me a while to share this part of my story because yeah, that stuff hit me. So my my great aunt, who was like my second grandmother, died in April of that year. That's around the same time that the girl from high school really said, okay, like this isn't working, started dating somebody else. Um, and then my grandmother died in June or July of that year, um, just that summer. Um, and so like it was like bam, bam, bam. Yeah. Um, it was like Comes April, it was like April, May, June, July or something like that. It was It was just, and then... You know, my only coping mechanism for all the pain that I was feeling, the emotions was, you know, drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. So, and then that was just a spiral after that. I tried to pick up the pieces every now and then. So I, I kind of reached out to a local contact politically um, just to say, hey, man, like, do you know if there's any other opportunities? And there were. And I went and worked at the Hamilton County Courthouse. Um, full-time, like as a salaried employee and worked on a campaign. This is 2008 now. There's another presidential campaign coming around. And so I was named the Hampton County pretty much volunteer director for that campaign. So I was like, okay, cool. I got this back, you know, I'll put life in motion, you know. But, I mean, I didn't realize, I guess, until later that literally seven days out of the week I was drinking. Um, I had become a regular up at a bar in Mount Adams, like an old man bar. I was like a regular. I was 22. Um, you know, there was just, I, I think I was just a little too far gone at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it showed up. So I flipped my car in the summer of 2008 um, on 71 North. No um, shit. Yeah, I flipped it twice. The only thing I hurt was my pinky. I was smoking a cigarette in my hand. Yeah. So I got a cigarette. My hand's on the windowsill, like windows down. And so when I flipped it, my hand hit the pavement or something. Um, But I woke up. I was on the opposite side of the guardrail. Um, I started saying this recently, but I'm pretty, I mean, it is kind of sad, like white privilege in a way that the sheriffs came and everything. And they, I mean, I was, I was done. Like I was, the nurse at the hospital told me that I had a 0.24 blood alcohol level. Um, but they put me in an ambulance, took me to the hospital. I didn't get in any trouble for it. Really? Um, How old were you at this point? Uh, I guess I was 22, 23. Um, and you know, my dad, I think my dad assumed, I think he knew, but the next day, so I got discharged from the hospital, like 5 AM. He came down, he came up and I'm living at his house, of course, their house at the time. Um, so I can't pay bills or anything like that, but, 
um, he came downstairs and I was like propped up in a recliner, like sore. And he said, you know, it's, it's funny, like people, you know, and he had been investigating this stuff for like 25 years of his career. And he said, you know, people typically walk away from things like that without any serious injuries, like snapping their neck or like, you know, really hurting themselves if they're asleep or if they're passed out. And he specifically said, there's a difference between the two, right? Because when you're passed out or asleep, your body just kind of rolls naturally with the car and you don't tense up and break something. Um, And I said, yeah, I guess I was asleep, you know, (laughs) just like shoved it off and nobody ever asked any questions after that. Um, But after that wreck, um, I really, you know, I kind of dabbled with painkillers off and on. But um, after that wreck, they did give me like 40 Vicodin and I thought, you know, I think I took them in two days, like all 40 of them. Wow. And I thought that was a good excuse to start buying those regularly. And so I did. Um, and then by by the end of August, I think I got fired from that campaign um, for just complete lack of job duties. Like, wasn't doing anything that I was supposed to be doing. Um, and then eventually found heroin. So I only, sni- I only snorted it at first. Um, but this this the next two years are pretty much me trying to get off of heroin, keep my family happy, um, and find a way to stay sober. That's pretty much how I spent those next two years through various different ways. So <laughs> it's kind of long and drawn out. But right. Yeah. Wow. Um, well thanks for thanks for sharing that. So what was your what was the saving grace? Well that's a good question. Um, so I'm not a one and done guy by any means. Um, I've picked up a lot of, as they say in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, a lot of white chips. I've, you know, I've, I've relapsed many a times. Um, the most pivotal point that I can go to is uh, December 9th of 2011. Um, I had been living on the streets pretty much, living at the drop-in center or out of my car for about uh, maybe a month um, at this point. Um, stealing to get high. I was shooting heroin at this point, um, stealing to get high, um, robbed from my family, my parents, um, random people, um, employers. Um, and it was with, uh, was with a guy that I was getting high with and, uh, I had stolen some checks and I gave him one of those checks to go into fifth third bank in cash, which he did. And, um, they, you know, it was flagged for fraud. And so they immediately called the police and I was arrested and charged with six felonies on December 9th, 2011. So, uh, a guy I had met at treatment once told me that if you ever get arrested and need detox, you should tell them you're going to kill yourself because they give you, they put you in the psych ward, you get your own cell, they medicate you. It's great. Um, I would not pass along that advice to anybody else. It was a horrible idea. But I did that and ended up in the psych ward on suicide watch for the about three days where I did violently detox, um, couldn't eat anything. I was not given medication or attention by any means. Um, wow. I was all alone. Um, so that backfired. Oh, it was terrible. It was, yeah. Um, but, you know, this was the start of, and, and, you know, I worked at the Hamilton County Courthouse for a while and I knew, I don't know if anybody... It's listening in Cincinnati, but as you know, we we deal with overcrowding in our justice center a lot. And so I thought, they're going to let me out. Like, they got to let me out. There's no way they're going to keep me over, 
you know, all these violent offenders in the city. Um, but they did, they kept me. And, um, I spent Christmas there. I spent New Year's there. Um, and I fought really hard to get into drug court. So, um, I was granted, you know, like my, my motion to get into drug court was accepted at the end of February, I believe. And then by mid-March, I, um, I was transferred over to the ADAPT program uh, for drug court. So I spent 102 days in jail, um, which I needed every bit of it, honestly. Um, then I went over to drug court and actually spent exactly 200, 102 days there. Um, I was very fortunate that I got a job at University of Cincinnati Medical Center uh, in environmental services um, before I got out. You have to have a job before you get out of ADAPT. Um, so they... You know, I got hired, orientation was going to start, so I decided, or they, they let me leave. I was asked to complete six months in a transitional living home. So I moved into the Gateway House on Vine Street, and um, that's really, you know, you kind of ask what the turning point was. And this is really, truly, I think, I know for a fact where my recovery really started. Um, you know, you get treatment, and court-based services. I mean, jail, you obviously don't get any treatment, but you're also not using. And then you get some treatment in court-based services, but you don't get to live life. You don't get to do anything about your recovery. You just kind of sit, absorb information, and hope for the best on the day you get out. Uh, And this is where I really got to start putting things in motion. And there were some iffy times. I mean, there was a time the first weekend I was at Gateway that I got on the bus to go down the library to hop on a computer and almost got off that bus and got high. Um, it just, you know, I, luckily, yeah, luckily I stayed on that bus until it went right back up the hill. I got out of Gateway and I told the first two guys that I saw what what was going on in my mind, and they they hung out with me. You know, they took me to a meeting. We went to dinner. I think we even like ran around like Ludlow area for a while, like just walked and talked and like hung out. And it passed, you know, and that was the first time I ever actually gave myself a shot to not get high. Um, so so I, I was working full-time at UC, uh, still my favorite job I've ever had to this day, to be honest. I, it was, you know, I had to be there at 6 a.m. Um, and I was emptying trash, cleaning up stuff in a hospital. But every day I walked in there and there was people that were a lot worse off than I was. Humbling. And yeah, extremely humbling. And every day that I walked in there feeling bad about myself or, um, you know, I can't believe that guy was snoring in my room last night or, you know, he took my macaroni and cheese, whatever it may be, the silly stuff that I was dealing with in life just all faded away when I walked in that hospital. And I got to be with people, you know. I mean, I I truly believe that the biggest antidote to addiction is community. Um, you know, com- addiction is the most isolating, the most, um, it's just the most removing from community disease there possibly is. It's the worst. Yeah. I mean, you are literally removed from society because you can't have real relationships. Whoever you're talking to, even if it's a quote unquote using buddy, you're out for yourself. I mean, you're truly trying to just look out for yourself the whole time. And then everything crumbles and you wind up by yourself. Correct. And then you are by yourself. Totally isolating. And then the use gets worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And then you're, yeah. Yeah. So the antidote is community, you know, and being amongst people. I mean, between the nurses, uh, even like the residents and doctors on the floor, like I could have interaction with. Um, Every day, you know, there's 30 rooms on a unit at the hospital. 
I have to walk in, empty their trash, say good morning, walk out, come back, clean their room. For those 10 to 15 minutes that I'm cleaning their room, if they're awake, I'm having interaction with them. And I worked on the oncology unit. So a lot of these folks, you know, are there for a longer period of time because they're going through treatment for, for cancer. And I mean, I got to know their wives and their kids and, you know, vice versa. Um, it was it was an amazing experience to be able to work in that capacity at that point in my life. Um, as part of drug court also, I was required to come to intensive outpatient programming four nights a week from 6 p.m. until 9 p.m. And I had to go, because I lived at Gateway, I had to go to five meetings a week. So... Um, and the only, the only way I was staying sober to begin with was the fact that I chose a sponsor and started working with him and was actually engaging in a recovery community outside of like work and outside of outpatient treatment. Um, so my life Monday through Friday really looked like wake up at four thirty, get dressed, go to work, ride the bus to work, um, come back, take a little nap, go to Oak street at four o'clock for a meeting, leave Oak street, grab a little bite to eat or, you know, whatever it may be um, right there somewhere and then show up to IOP from six to nine and then go home at like nine 30 and go to sleep and do it all over again. Which idle time is a killer. Too. Yeah. So you are wrapped up with things to do, which Correct. is extremely important. Mm -hmm. It was structured. It was, there was always somebody around. I was never alone. Um, it was kind of exciting to be honest. Um, and then, you know, the weekends, uh, I would work, every other weekend at the hospital. Um, but the weekends that I did it, I started receiving uh, passes to go home, you know, so I would go home to my mom and dad's and see family and hang out and, um, you know, just start working on that relationship. That was huge to be able to just very slowly, um, one weekend at a time, kind of start working on that relationship that I had really, really ruined in a way. I mean, they were along my side every step of the way, mind you, but they had to distance themselves at some point. You know, they watched me for three or four years just lie and steal and lie and steal and then get better and make promises and then lie about it and break those promises. So it took some time to work on. Um, and then, you know, life was just kind of moving at that point. Did you have trouble in early recovery with forgiving yourself? Shame and guilt and it's stuff a great like that. question. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> um, I had that at many times in my life. I um, I don't really remember the shame and guilt necessarily because, like, in jail for three months, yeah. I mean, I dealt with all that mm. without a, without any sort of a solution, right? I mean, it was me and God in jail, really. Um, I mean, I was very lucky in jail. I was with, you know, bunkies who were respectful, um, who weren't that bad. Um, you know, I was amongst other people who fortunately I didn't get like any trouble in jail. You know, it's, I, I watched a couple guys that were there for similar things as me who just unfortunately, you know, looked at somebody the wrong way or said something to the wrong person. And you know, that it ended up a little different. Mm -hmm. Um, I was fortunate in that aspect. God literally was looking out for me every second of the way. Um, and, but yeah, I, I asked, you know, my mom had kind of reached out to like the church and everybody for like reading material to send me because I don't know. I, and I hadn't read in a long time. I don't know. <laughs> I still don't read to this day that much, but 
I read a lot in there, and that was in most of the books they sent me. I mean, mind you, if people from church send you books, they probably have something to do with God. But um, a couple people, you know, I started specifically saying, can I just get some novels, like some stories, just get me out of my head in here, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And so I would get some really good stuff. Um, But it was just me and, you know, and it was a lot of prayer. It was a lot of, you know, kind of dealing with that stuff. And then I will say that I had a phenomenal therapist at, at Adapt who really, she really spent time on kind of that guilt and shame stuff she's not saying it's not your fault by any means. Like, you know, it's always that disease or choice. Uh, It's always that disease or choice thing. Right. Um, when I, when I pick up and when I am under the influence, I, I lose the choice to not pick up again. Like I'm going to probably pick up again. Um, but when I'm, when I'm clean is when I get my choice back. And that's when I can start using tools and start using what I've learned and put into place to make a better choice. Um, so she kind of talked about that a lot. And, and by no means does the disease of addiction give me like a pass on what I did by any means. Um, but it, it at least let me know that internally I'm not just this horrible failure of a person, um, like a criminal forever just because that's who I am. Um, but I definitely had to take, take hold and work to correct what I had done. Um, all the guilt and shame kind of worked its way out through there. Well, thanks for sharing that. What's your sobriety date? So it's actually, um, eight of 15. So there's a little more to my story there that <laughs> get into. I said, I, I'm not a one and done kind of guy. I learned through sobriety that, you really have to keep at it. Um, there's this old saying that the ear disease is in the parking lot doing push-ups. It's true. I mean, it doesn't stop, and it, it starts off right where you left it. Um, so I, I, have, I, am a, I have what many would call a dual diagnosis with depression. And at one point in the winter of 2014, I fell into, I mean, I just I wasn't doing anything for myself physically, uh, spiritually, um, for my recovery, really. Um, so I wasn't doing anything for myself and felt susceptible to picking up again. And I did. And I went and I actually, at one point was treated strictly for depression. So I had been taking an antidepressant. They gave it to me in, in jail. And then my primary care physician kind of continued it. Um, it seemed to have stopped working or something. Um, I got depressed to the point where I couldn't get out of bed where it was very easy for me to cry. Um, just complete, like no, no desire to do anything kind of anhedonia. Okay. Um, yeah, I went through that. So, so that's why, you know, mental health and stuff that means a lot to me. How long did that little going back out last? Um, not long. Uh, it was actually more like two or three binges that I did like a weekend, like three weekends over the course of six months. So I'd go back out for like three days and then pull it together for like a month and a half, two months, and then go out for like three days. So, but for those six months, yeah, I didn't, I don't know. It just, I would go to meetings, but I never did what I knew I needed to do. Um, and then I did, so. Still involved in 12-step? I mean, still have yeah, absolutely. home group and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So. It's uh, it's evolved, I guess, over the years. Uh, so I, I, I moved to Jacksonville, Florida in 2015, and... Um, 
I, I, that's when I decided I was just going to do it all over again. I was going to do what I learned from day one all over again down there. And I did, I found a sponsor. I had a home group. I did a 90 and 90. I did all of those suggestions. Um, and so, um, moving from Jacksonville back here, there was a weird transition as far as getting plugged back in. A lot of the guys that I knew when I first got sober are now married or, you know, kind of careers and their lives have changed a lot too. And we don't, you know, we don't have every day to spend with each other like we did back then. So, um, so it's been an interesting transition trying to, you know, but I had to plug back in or else I was going to fall to the same fate that I did in 2014. So, yeah. So you're working in treatment now Mm -hmm. in a new treatment center in Cincinnati, the stigma that goes along with all this mental health, Mm -hmm. substance use in the world of trying to get people into treatment and recovery. How does, what are the challenges? Uh, The main challenge is that people are struggling with substance use and mental health disorders that are working, that are trying to maintain life and are too scared to take the, the rights that they have as far as medical leave disability, whatever it may be, uh, because they don't want their employer or whoever else to possibly know that they are struggling with substance use or mental health disorders. Um, that's a, that's an interesting take on it. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I talk to people every day, um, that are trying to come into treatment and, um, one of the biggest barriers they have, they have the resources because they're privately insured through their employer. Um, they have a severe problem, whether it be alcoholism, uh, tons of opiates that are that are being used, um, whatever it may be. Um, and they have Family Medical Leave Act completely protects them. It protects their position with work. Um, they have short-term disability available to them so they can still recoup some of their pay while they're in treatment. And they still won't go save their life because they're so afraid that their boss or HR or whoever it may be will find out and they might come back from work after going to treatment, but then eventually they'll find a way to let them go is their fear. You're dealing with people that actually want to get help. Yes. Versus the stigma that suffocates a lot of people who don't want to, don't want to accept it. Or, Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess they're, they're both worrying about what other people think. Right. But worrying about your job and employment and mm-hmm. keeping it under wraps. I mean, that makes a lot of sense for a, a population of a big population of people. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's related to cancer a lot, but I don't know anybody. I don't know anybody on the face of the earth that if they were told they had cancer, but, and they were told that they can take three, four, five, six months off work and still get paid um, to treat their disease. Wouldn't do it the next day. Um, it takes people weeks, sometimes months to make that decision to say, okay, yeah, this is bad enough that I might just lose this job if I don't take the leave, but they won't do it the next day. And they ask a million questions and they have all these fears and they, they still have trouble going back to that employer and worrying every day. And any worry in early recovery is not healthy. Right. Um, but that's the stigma, man. Of I course. Mean, it's, it's, yeah. It is absolutely has a chokehold on mm-hmm. our society because mm-hmm. it's really not cancer. Right. You know, this is a self-inflicted mm-hmm. thing and something we got to come to terms with. And, you know, worrying about reputation is a big, mm-hmm. it's a big struggle for people. So Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. What would you tell, again, working in your, in your field, the mother that's sitting behind the phone, afraid to make a phone call, doesn't know what to do, an individual that 
hasn't taken the steps that the ones you're describing have as far as mm -hmm. reaching out. What do you say to those people? I tell them that there's a way out. I tell them that there are resources and there are resources and that there's the, they have the ability to access them and they can find a way out. Usually when I talk to a mom, um, I, I very clearly tell her what's available to her loved one, whether it be a son or a daughter. Um, and I, I talk a little bit about my mom and where she's at now and our relationship. If we get into that, um, and I, and I just encourage her to let me talk to the loved one. You know, when I'm talking to a mom, it's, they're either calling and seeking help so that they have the option when their son or daughter reaches out for help. And they just want to make sure that they have the right option for them because they don't know necessarily where to turn. Um, they're calling because their son or daughter got in trouble and they can't make a call on their own. Um, or they just are trying to look for some sort of answer to what they're dealing with because their son or daughter doesn't want help. Um, you know, I talked to a mom probably about a, just a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, her son had just gotten arrested um, on a probation violation that he had from a substance use charge, explained our program, explained how we could possibly help her and her son if, uh, you know, if he wanted to. Um, we talked for maybe half an hour um, just about the ins and outs and everything and how it would all work and the transition from jail to our program. And um, she, she just kind of sighed at the end and said, this is, thank you. This is at least just giving me a little bit of hope. And that, that was amazing. And I said, ma'am, I'm just doing my job. And she said, yeah, I know, but now I can have some hope for a couple of days, you know, that this is all going to be okay. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I've, send a few people your way mm -hmm. at least to approach the getting help part mm -hmm. and i always say what's the number to intake you know and you always say let me talk to them mm -hmm. you always insist on that so your bedside manner is great being yeah. able to uh, relate to somebody or, or or give them that you know that kind of lead into mm -hmm. what their experience will be like not, I mean, good, people that are good at their job like you mm -hmm. take that extra step as opposed to taking them to dispatch and kind of mm -hmm. getting it all worked out technically and what's your insurance and, mm -hmm. you know, bang, 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 get your ass in here mm -hmm. in, a, in a bed type of thing. So yeah. you're a consummate professional. And, uh, well, thank yeah. you. So what's the name of the, the treatment center where you, where you work now? Yeah. So I'm with Hotel California by the Sea Cincinnati. Uh, we're, uh, we're a phenomenal evidence-based, individualized detox, residential, and outpatient program in Blue Ash if you're in Cincinnati. And then we have two locations on the West Coast, Newport Beach, California, and Bellevue, Washington. And as far as contact information, we'll put mm -hmm. all of that in the description of the episode, okay. website, your contact information, yep. uh, any kind of social media yeah, and we're happy to help regardless. You're going to get a real person on the phone. I mean, our admissions line, our 1-800 number rings to my cell phone. Um, it rings to, um, you know, so we are available and we are just real people trying to help. So uh, regardless of income, regardless of coverage, um, you know, we, we, we love to help people get placed into the right level of care and the right treatment that they deserve. Yeah, And we had J.B. Whitehouse on a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago, uh, who's kind of runs the show there. And it's... It's only been here for about a year. Just uh, oh, coming up on a year in August. Yep. Yeah. And it's a different 
it's 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 a different program than what has been around here. So people Absolutely. Uh, need to check it out, and we'll put all that stuff on uh, my website and and the description to the show and the and the podcast stuff. So cool, awesome. Well, um, I really appreciate you being here, man. You I appreciate your friendship and uh, everything you're doing, and uh, I wish you luck going down going down the road. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.